0: Welcome to Chatter, I'm David Priest. This week, federal prosecutor and author, Brendan Ballou on private equity and national security.
1: Private equity is a term that I think we've all heard, but you know, if we're being honest, and I I need to say this about myself, I didn't know what private equity was until I got pretty far into this project. SolarWinds had extremely lax security standards, whether it was Having a publicly available password that I believe was literally SolarWinds123, not a great look. It seems that SolarWinds, despite being incredibly important for our national security, was not taking its own security terribly seriously. These are, in many ways, our leading financial institutions, but they aren't regulated in the same way. I would encourage the same level of scrutiny of private equity firms and their holdings that sort of our investment banks and others receive today.
0: Brendan Ballew, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you you joined us because, you know, you are, among other things, um, someone who, in acknowledgments of books, thanks someone who doesn't get enough thanks for what he does. And that's Mr. Alan Rosenstein, who (laughs) is... working with us here on so many things at Lawfare. How do you know Alan?
1: Alan and I worked together at the National Security Division in the Justice Department, and he was a year or two ahead of me. So he was the mentor, big brother figure that I needed while I was oh, there. Oh, I'm so
0: sorry. That that explains <laughs> a lot. Um, I, I do need to say up front, if you worked at the National Security Division, and I know you're still at DOJ now, that means that everything you say is probably your personal point of view and not reflecting the policies or the take of the justice department. Is that right?
1: Spoken like an experienced former government employee <laughs> yes, himself. Yes. yes, that's exactly right.
0: These, these, these things happen. Um, but everything you say about Alan Rosenstein are, you know, the, obviously the official word of anyone who has a sane mind.
1: Oh yeah. No, I think yeah. it's the consensus opinion.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad that, that we connected cause you have really dove deeply, d- uh, dived, divin, dove, whatever. You have jumped deeply into a topic that does not get a lot of attention. And I suspect that's why you decided to to try to change that. Um, that topic is private equity, which I, I do want to get to. But you opened up a can there by saying you, you started at the National Security Division. Some of our listeners don't know much about the National Security Division, especially since it, it hasn't been around as long as the Justice Department. Um, what is NSD and what kinds of things do you do when you work there?
1: Sure. So the National Security Division is a part of the Department of Justice charged with helping with prosecutions of um, broadly national security crimes. Um, so it has different components. Part of it is works on intelligence matters or espionage. Part of it works on terrorism. Part of it works on um, briefings and, and arguments before the FISA, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, court. Um, and then the part that I was in was the law and policy section, which worked on appellate litigation and um, advising the White House and other departments and agencies on various national security proposals they had.
0: So National Security Division, obviously the things being covered by NSD were were being covered by other parts of DOJ before its creation.
1: Yeah, yeah. and And, you know, NSD's creation predates my time um, you know I obviously after 9/11 there was a, a mm-hmm. huge transformation not only within DOJ but you know across the federal government the creation of DHS and so forth um, NSD is a is a huge part of DOJ and if you've ever been in Maine justice you know that to your frustration because NSD has what what are called as many of your listeners probably know are skiffs these secure compartmentalized information facilities and uh, thanks to NSD being so prominent, it is extremely hard to navigate around Main Justice because there are so many skiffs scattered throughout the building.
0: <laughs> that that does add an extra challenge. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and I do have to say that the folks in the National Security Division uh, were were not. I'll put it this way: I was not the favorite person in their eyes in a couple of years after 9/11 because many days I was briefing the attorney general and the FBI director early in the morning. Uh, often that was over at the SIOC in the FBI headquarters, but sometimes it was in the attorney general's office. And I had this time blocked out and, and I would go in and we'd sit in there and we'd talk. And uh, the attorney general and the FBI director, when he joined us there as well, were very interested in the intelligence. And so we would we would use all of that time. And I would come out of that briefing and I would be getting dirty looks from people who were carrying what clearly were urgent papers that had to be signed. Um, surely not all of them were from the national security side, but I know in those days, a hell of a lot of them were. And they, I, I was not trying to keep them away from their boss. That was not my, my purpose. It was his choice how to spend his time. But I always felt like they resented the fact that Uh, that he spent quite a bit of time going over the, the intelligence and perhaps putting off by a few minutes here and there, these very important papers that had to be signed.
1: It turns out national security is very important. They don't tell you that when you go to law school. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew?
0: Yeah. Well, you did transition. Now, if I, if I understand right, you're working in antitrust. What's it like moving from national security issues to antitrust?
1: Oh, it's, it's a complete world, you know, sea change. Um, So briefly, I I left the National Security Division um, uh, during the last administration and became very interested in um, issues of what I'd call broadly economic justice. You know, the idea being that, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever issue you care about, um, it becomes a lot harder to solve when you have uh, an economy that's, you know, broken to many people and, you know, large inequality. And antitrust is the primary legal lever by which to address that. Um, it's really exciting. I think even for folks that are not in sort of the weeds of antitrust world right now, um, it's clear that there's a lot of things going on, whether it's cases involving big tech or um, large acquisitions that are going on to you know price fixing. Um, there's so much energy in thinking about the law right now. The challenge that you've got compared to NSD is, you know, the antitrust laws are collectively what? 20 sentences long or something like that. Whereas, you know, the national security division, you've got, you know, criminal statutes, you've got regulations, you've got a whole body of sort of administrative law and practice. Antitrust, the excitement and the challenge of it right now is so much of it is literally
0: unwritten. Mm -hmm. I have a sense, and I'll tell you why I have this sense, but I have a sense that you didn't jump into antitrust and suddenly have to learn about, you know, all of the, the history and the, the details of it. I, I have a sense that you already had some kind of an understanding and appreciation for the history of monopolies and trust busting and things like that in this country. Um, first of all, am I right about that? And, and if so, where did you develop that interest that, that helped you when you jumped into this job? That
1: is incredibly kind of you, and I'm not even sure it's true, um, in that I think um, uh, a lot of what I've learned about antitrust has has been on the job. Um, I think that you know, I, I have always been interested in these issues, partly just because of my family. Um, my mom was a community organizer back in St. Paul, Minnesota, and was very interested and you know, passionate about issues of economic justice. Her big project was Making sure that working class people wouldn't lose their their heat in Minnesota if they couldn't pay the bills in the winter, hmm. um, so I think that was part She's of it.
0: Needed co- in Texas
1: these days. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, part of the Texas utility system was was purchased by um, uh, private equity firms. But we can get into that. I don't want to jump ahead too far. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was it was always an ambient part of of um, my childhood and growing up. Um, I will say I think that we've got a moment right now where. Antitrust and these sort of broader issues are a part of the national dialogue in a way that they haven't been before, whether or not you call it antitrust or not. Um, I think that these are things that people from my generation and, and younger generations are talking about all the time. I guess mm-hmm. the last thing you know to to try to answer your question directly is, you know, one one person or one um, book that got me interested in these issues um, even before I returned to DOJ was um, uh, Louis Brandeis, you know, the Supreme Court Justice, who wrote this wonderful book. And I think it has the best title, uh, Other People's Money and How the Bankers Use It. And it's the story of the money trust in the 1910s and how mm-hmm. it dominated so much of our economy. And reading that, I think it was inspiring for me to realize how much of the challenges that we're seeing in the economy right now, um, uh, the, are really sort of recreations or repetitions of what happened, you know, a little over a hundred years ago. And so in some sense that was, you know, dispiriting or scary, but in some sense it was also hopeful because it showed you that, you know, if we have solved these problems once, we can do it again.
0: Right on. And, and I knew there was that sense of history there because a uh, few people end the acknowledgements in their book by by shouting out to both their mother and to Louis Brandeis as the <laughs> two most thanked people. So there is some appreciation for I, what has yeah, gone to before. for.
1: I, I, I don't think enough people are thanking my mother and their acknowledgements in their, their books. So I'll, I'll pass the message along.
0: That clearly needs to change. Yeah. Uh, I'm making reference, of course, uh, by talking about the acknowledgements in your book to your new book called Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. When did you first think that a book needed to be written on this and why? So I started
1: this project um, at the outset of the pandemic in quarantine. And, you know, I was back at antitrust. And one of the things that the antitrust division, as well as the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, sees is when big companies want to buy other big companies, they have to submit what are called HSR forms that basically say, here's who we are, here's who they are, here's what we pl- propose to do. And, and the agencies can decide whether or not they're going to Permit the acquisition or seek to enjoin it. Um, And I was looking at these uh, forms that were coming in every day, and I kept seeing these names that I had never heard of, um, Blackstone, Carlisle, KKR, and so forth. Mm. And um, they were buying up everything. And they were companies that I had never heard of. And so that got me started looking into, well, who are these firms? Um, There's something called private equity. Um, what do we know about them? And I was surprised at how little was written about private equity as an institution and what kind of effect it's having on the country. Um, There's really important reporting going on on private equity in specific industries, whether you're talking about nursing homes, daycares, veterinary clinics, you know, and so forth. Um, But there really hasn't been a comprehensive book for a popular audience trying to explain what is private equity and how is it transforming the country. So Mm -hmm. I wrote up the proposal. We were, we were lucky enough to find a a wonderful publisher. And, um, you know, I get to spend the next year of my life learning a lot about this issue.
0: Well, give us a sense of, of how you, you sold the book and how the publisher jumped into it by talking about what private equity is and what it isn't. And I'm going to channel Denzel Washington's character in Philadelphia here by saying, I want you to explain this to me like I'm a six-year-old. <laughs>
1: uh, a great role in a great movie. Um, so uh, I'll try to be like Tom Hanks in Philadelphia and try to be quick on my feet here. Excellent. So, Yeah, very briefly, private equity is a term that I think we've all heard. But, you know, if we're being honest, and I, I need to say this about myself, I didn't know what private equity was until I got pretty far into this project. Um, the basic idea is very simple. So a private equity firm, what they do is they buy a company um, with a little bit of their own money, some uh, money from investors, and a whole lot of borrowed money. They then try to make operational or financial changes and try to sell the company for a profit a few years later. Now, that's a very simple idea. Um, But the challenge that we've got is the private equity business model, for the most part, has three problems. One is that private equity firms buy companies just for a few years, typically. Um, the second is that they tend to load up the companies they buy with a lot of debt and they tend to extract a lot of fees. And then the third thing is that private equity firms, and this is the part that interests me as a lawyer, tend to be very good at insulating themselves from legal liability uh, for the consequences of their actions or the actions of their portfolio companies. And so the challenge that you've got is you've got um, short-term thinking, a lot of, lot of debt and leverage and uh, insulation from responsibility. And that tends to create a lot of bad outcomes across industries, You know, whether you're talking about single-family rental homes, prison services, healthcare, care, um, uh, insurance, and a whole bunch else. So what we did when we were pitching the book is we tried to explain, okay, here's this mysterious part of the economy that um, people really don't understand and need to understand. Because like I always say, Private equity is poised to reshape the economy in this decade the way that subprime lenders, you know, big tech did in the last decade, the way that subprime mm-hmm. lenders did in the decade before that. And yet it's an institution, it's a set of firms that most people just haven't heard of. And if I can add just one last point to that, um, you know, the three largest private equity firms, I, I might get the order of this wrong, would be KKR, Carlyle, and Blackstone. And Maybe you've heard of them, maybe you haven't. If you considered themselves, considered them with their portfolio companies, they would be the third, fourth, and fifth largest employers in America behind only Walmart and Amazon. And yet for most people, these firms are mysteries.
0: I think that rings true because most people don't think in terms of parent companies, unless you're working in antitrust or unless you're a conspiracy theorist (laughs) trying to, you know, get all the threads going back and forth between things. You're you're thinking of that retailer you go to, not who the ultimate owner is or the shell company, if there is one that's moving it around. So I think that that makes sense. Now, in the national security world, we are familiar with a couple of these, and and we'll get to some of the reasons involving personnel why some of those names do ring a bell for a lot of people who have worked in in national security. But let's dig a little bit deeper on private equity and and what it is to make this business model you've described work, which is. You know, buying a company and then presumably trying to make it more efficient. Um, and that can lead to the company being successful, which many times does happen, or it can lead to such strict cost cutting and all of these other strategies we'll talk about that the company ultimately ends up going out of business, but the private equity firm makes money. But to make that business model work, the private equity firm needs money. So what are the sources of the money that Private equity is throwing around like this.
1: Sure. And I should say, you know, when we're talking critically about private equity, we we should distinguish it from other kinds of investment. As long as businesses need to build factories or hire new employees or, you know, expand into a new market, there's always going to be a role for capital and investment. This critique is not a critique of capitalism. It's a critique of a specific business model that we've created in the last few decades. that business model is private equity. Uh, In terms of how these private equity firms tend to get their money, um, so they tend to bring a little bit of their own money to a given acquisition. They tend to bring some money from investors. So traditionally, these have been pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, things like that. Increasingly, it may someday be 401k funds, um, maybe even money from ordinary investors. But the real source of money is borrowed money. Um, So they, they put up a little bit of their own, but they borrow a lot of money to buy these companies. Now, the real sort of magic trick of the private equity business model is that it's not the private equity firm that takes out the loan. It's the company that they buy that is ultimately responsible for the debt. So what happens is when they buy a business, if the business goes south, if the business isn't able to pay its debt, it's the business that's responsible, not the private equity firm.
0: Help me understand that, because that, that sounds a bit confusing. On the one hand, they have bought this company. They are now the owners of this company. So if the company takes on debt, how does the owner ultimately of the company not also in some way become responsible for it?
1: So it's a great question. So... um Generally, what will happen in an acquisition is, let's say, um, you know, Blackstone wants to buy, you know, Lawfare or something like that. They'll come to the owners of Lawfare and they'll say, "Hey, we've got a great idea for you. We, we want to take your, we want to take over your business, transform it, you know, sell it for a profit a few years later. But we need you to to borrow some money um, so that you can buy back most of the outstanding equity um, on Lawfare, and you agree to do that because the executives of Lawfare are going to get a really nice bonus when the company is sold." So they buy some of the equity with the debt that the company takes on. And then Blackstone or whatever the private equity firm will buy the rest with its money. Um, And that makes it the private owner of lawfare, hence the private and private equity. The interesting thing about it is um, historically, mere investors have been shielded from liability for their portfolio companies. And and that Mm. makes sense in a lot of cases. So if you've got your Vanguard or Fidelity account or something like that, um, and it's invested in Google and Toys R Us and whatever it happens to be. If somebody sues Google and wins, they ultimately can't recover from you, and that intuitively makes sense because you, David, are you're a very smart guy, but probably are not directing the you know the operations huh. of any of these given companies. So that makes sense in general. Um, it makes less sense often in the private equity context because what you've got is the the sole investor even though technically not in control of the operations of the company, effectively can do that by choosing the board of directors and choosing the leadership and, you know, basically saying how they would like the company to run. So it's an odd sort of um, tangle or twist in the law that we've created for ourselves where private equity firms tend to be able to control the operations of their companies, but tend not to be legally responsible if those operations go badly.
0: That's, that's interesting. And it, it also would, would logically seem to affect at least one of those sources of, of money. I can't imagine that banks and other lenders, uh, or even the investors in a private equity firm like pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and all these things, I would think that over time, if they saw these tactics not working, they would not want to invest. So it may It may be that they avoid legal liability for some of these issues, but clearly it's working from an investment point of view in in terms of simply making money, right?
1: Yeah. So a couple of things. One is there is some research out there questioning um, just how good are the returns for private equity firms? Um, Do they actually outperform the market? And there's sort of a growing body of analysis out there suggesting that, you know, that might not be the case. I'm not an economist. I'm not a financial analyst, so I try to put those arguments to the side and say, even in situations where private equity firms are making money for their investors, um, often it comes at the expense of the long term. Um, you know, I, the the challenge that we've got here is if you have an investment horizon of just a couple years. You know, you've bought up a company, you need to flip it in three to five years chances are you're going to do things that are going to make you money quickly you're going to sell assets you're going to cut staff you know sure, you're going sure. to raise prices in the short term you're not going to make the investments in research and development building the new factory you know making sure that you have a long term stable clientele and we see that happen over and over again in a whole range of different industries whether you're talking about you know nursing homes which we touched on earlier prison services mobile homes and so forth You see private equity firms often sort of taking the the short-term solution that gives them and their investors a quick, you know, sort of chunk of cash, but at the expense of the long-term health of their companies.
0: And that's not to say that sometimes it doesn't work for the long term. Some companies (laughs) bought by private equity, either because they're well-functioning and they continue to, to thrive, or in some cases, they're not doing well and some of these efficiencies do work. Obviously, we're, we're going to talk a lot about the cases that that don't work well in the long term, but you're you're not saying that this never is good for the companies that are purchased, right? Exactly.
1: You know, I, I, I don't want to overstate the case here. There are so many investments uh, by private equity firms that make money for the private equity firm that make money for the investors. There are also a lot of investments that ultimately work out fine for the portfolio companies. You know, I mentioned the sort of three problems earlier, you know, short-term investments, loading the companies up with debt uh, and and insulation from liability. Well, different firms are sort of, you know, they're like dials and, you know, different firms sort of turn the dials differently. And so if you take a longer term perspective, if you use less debt, if you take on more responsibility for the companies, generally you have better long-term outcomes. Um, the challenge that we've got right now is, you know, those dials are often turned to 11, to use spinal tap analogy, you know, for at least a couple of firms. And Mm -hmm. that leads to a lot of bad outcomes for businesses. And we can talk about specific businesses, but just in the aggregate here, at least one study suggests that companies purchased by private equity firms are 10 times as likely to go bankrupt as companies that aren't. Mm -hmm. Um, Looking at the retail industry alone... Um, retailers bought by private equity firms and some hedge funds lost an estimated 600,000 600, jobs over a decade at a time when the industry was actually gaining jobs. Um, so, you know, the, the analogy that I always use is, you know, you don't need every Ford Pinto to explode for, you know, it to be unsafe at any speed. Uh, you know, it's not that every private equity deal goes badly. It's that the chance that it goes badly increases significantly.
0: Right. Now, let's talk about some of these methods, some of these things that the private equity firms, some of them more than others, um, and not in every case, but some of the, the techniques they use to basically make money quickly. And this is everything from everything from leasebacks to using a bankruptcy strategically to um, what you call operational efficiencies, probably because that's the term they use. Talk through some of those. What are the most common methods by which private equity does the things that, in your view, do have some bad medium and long-term consequences, even for the companies that are purchased?
1: It's a great question. And and maybe we should break it up because there's just so much to say here. So uh, the first one that you mentioned was the sale-leaseback. So what happens is for instance when the private equity firm sun capital bought the midwest retailer shopco and if if you grew up in you know rural minnesota or wisconsin you probably knew shopco it was sort of one step above walmart one step below target it was great um, and what sun capital bought up shopco one of the first things that they did was they required shopco to sell the buildings where its stores were shopco owned those assets and it required them to sell them and that made a quick chunk of cash for Shopco. It also made a lot of money for Sun Capital, which got transaction fees off off of those sales. But what it meant is that Shopco ultimately didn't have the assets that it used to have that it could borrow against in bad times, or you know, rely right. on in good. And it meant that it now had an you know, rather than owning the property, it had an unending lease obligation um, for the same places mm-hmm. that it that it occupied. Ultimately, you know, Shopco went bankrupt. Um, and I, I don't believe that there are any Shopco stores still existing. I could be wrong about that. Yeah. But that's the, the lease back tactic. And that happens in a whole bunch of different industries, not just retail. You know, this happens with nursing homes and other places. Yeah. Um, the, the second example that you mentioned, if I can tell a story on this one, um, is strategic bankruptcies. Mm-hmm. So... You know, as I mentioned, uh, private equity firms uh, that buy companies, those companies are 10 times as likely, at least according to one estimate, to go bankrupt as as non-private equity owned companies. Now, why does that happen? Uh, Private equities advocates will say, well, this is a sense, essentially inevitable, you know, that uh, we buy struggling businesses or businesses on the brink. Of course, you know, some of the, you know, we're going to have a disproportionate number fail. That might be true, uh, but there are cases where private equity firms can actually profit through the bankruptcy process. And just to give you one example, um, you know, if you grew up in the Northeast, maybe you're familiar with Friendly's, the ice cream and diner chain, uh, mm-hmm. which was started during the Great Depression by these two brothers, um, you know, who were selling their ice cream for five cents a scoop. It was this really sort of inspiring all-American tale. Ultimately, Friendly's was sold to actually, ironically, Sun Capital, the same uh, firm that bought Shopco. Um, and Sun Capital ultimately pushed Friendlies into bankruptcy. And they did this really interesting sort of legal sleight of hand because they were Friendly's owner, but they were also Friendly's largest lender. And normally the lenders, this is dramatically simplifying things, but normally the lenders sort of take over the company when a company fails. But because Sun Capital both owned Friendlies and was its larger lender... They were actually able to sell the bankrupt business from itself to itself, which was this really interesting sort of strange sort of legal card
0: trick. I would nope. hate to see the paperwork on that because I have a feeling I would have a headache for weeks.
1: <laughs> I, I read through the 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 paperwork in the bankruptcy docket, and it was really interesting because it, there's sort of this strange way in which they talk about the. Uh, it's Sun Capital talks about itself almost in the third person. It's it wasn't mm-hmm. deceitful, but it was um, very very artfully written. Um, but why would they do that? They would do it so that um, the pension obligations that Friendly's had to its employees and to its retirees, they were able to slough that off onto what's called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which is this federally chartered company that basically sure. insures pensions um, and mm-hmm. is paid for by other more responsible plans. So by selling friendlies from itself to itself, Sun Capital was able to abandon the pension obligations and reacquire the company, you know, sort of free of those responsibilities. So that's another way in which private equity firms um, are able to sort of use our our laws and regulations to essentially profit. I would argue in a way that probably was not intended by the law.
0: Now, to to an amateur ear, Brendan, what you just described. Um, doesn't necessarily sound like fraud but it does sound similar it echoes with fraud because here you are buying something uh offloading to 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 this guarantee it it, it just it sounds dirty <laughs> which is probably why you were attracted to 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 writing about it as a case study but if it is not fraud according to the law why isn't it
1: <laughs> it's, so I hesitate to, to cast any aspersions because I am a government lawyer. And what they did was not illegal. Um, it actually was perfectly legal. And not only is it legal, it's common. According to one study by a Harvard researcher, um, this sort of move by private equity firms has happened, I think, over 50 times in 15 years. Um, so it's not uncommon. You know, The really interesting point about that Friendly's example is I remember you know, I was talking about the brothers who started this business. They you know, sort of these all-American types who closed down their their ice cream shop during World War II and put a sign out that said they'd return when we won the war. You know, they they really had a, a sense of their long-term business and their their the place of that business in the country. The co-founder of Sun Capital, after the bankruptcy um, by of friendlies, uh, when asked about it said simply, quote, uh, "We don't make the rules." So it was a very yeah. different perspective on. Yeah. Sort of their corporate responsibility, but to get to your question, sort of why does this happen? I this is a little flip, but part of it is that I think private equity firms have made this seem so boring. You know, it's like just talking about bankruptcy dockets. It it sounds dull, but it's um it's actually not just important. It's sort of thrilling once you get into the details.
0: And it affects a lot of people's lives, right? And It's easy to look at these private equity firms and in this case seems to make it a a very clear cut story, but we have to remember that uh, someone chose to sell the company to the private equity firm. Now, maybe they didn't have perfect information about what was to come and what would happen, but that was a decision to make that uh, the company for, for whatever reason would sell and whatever due diligence they did they were also responsible for selling to this private equity firm that did this.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's a really interesting tension that's going on that you see in other industries where, you know, proprietors of smaller mid-sized businesses are looking to retire and cash out. And private equity firms offer a very attractive opportunity for them Um, But the cost to the people that remain at the business can often be very high. Um, One of the areas that I've been really interested in is private equity acquisitions of dermatology practices where Mm -hmm. a lot of dermatologists have been selling. um, But it results in, as reported, extremely bad working conditions for doctors, you know, nurses, PAs, and so forth that, you know, they have immense caseloads. They are not able to buy the supplies they need, according to one accusation um you know the the private equity leadership or the ones the leader, the leadership that they uh installed uh directed the company to buy subpar needles that broke off in patients' bodies you know um because they were far away from the medical decisions and you know these were the cheapest cheapest options available um it's gotten to the point that if you actually look at job postings um for some dermatologists they'll they'll advertise the practice and literally say in the job job description not private equity owned um so you're seeing sort of the 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 sort of intergenerational effects become very well known in some industries to the to the to the extent that you know young people just don't want to work at these places and will avoid it if they can
0: yeah one area that struck me where where you point out the role of private equity is in the issue of home ownership and what's happened in, in some areas to, to be honest, more than others, um, in terms of the shift from home ownership to a whole lot of foreclosures and subsequently rentals. And, and I saw it myself in Cape Coral Florida where I spent a decent amount of time some years ago. And, and I saw it from one visit to the next, the amount of signs up of houses for sale just, I mean it escalated very quickly and I of course did not understand that there was a link to private equity at the time. Walk us through that. How did the the home ownership crisis how was that linked to this whole issue you're looking at here?
1: Yeah, in it's it's so good that you mentioned Cape Coral, which was you know one of those cities that was hit almost more than any other by the by the Great Recession and the foreclosure crisis um, you know you 're talking about you know whether it 's um, uh, Cape Coral or Las Vegas you know parts of Phoenix, Atlanta, and so forth um, you know whole communities that were transformed by the Great Recession. Um, at that time, you know, probably the smartest policy thing the government could have done would be to temporarily lower the principal on um, on borrowers' uh, mortgages. You know, people had bought houses that were underwater. It would have, you know, at that point, it's rational for people to leave. But by lowering the principal, you you know, you enable people to stay, which present you know, limits the sort of ripple effect that you have in whole communities. Um, That would have been the smart move and kept, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in their home. That is not what the regulators decided to do. Um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and its overseeing regulator, the FHFA, uh, its leader adamantly refused to consider principal reduction. But what it did instead is as, you know, thousands of homes were being foreclosed, uh, the FHFA started selling tracks of foreclosed homes. So rather than selling them individually so that people could buy them, selling them in tracks so that institutional investors could, started selling tracks of homes to private equity firms. Um, And what was really interesting is these private equity firms didn't resell the homes. What they did is they converted them into rental properties. And you really have a whole new movement of what's called the single family rental. And communities where the same people, you know, live in these, t- in, in these neighborhoods in Atlanta or, you know, Las Vegas or where have you, um, but they're no longer owners. They're renters. Um, and so private equity has been um, enormously successful in that. Um, Colony, Starwood Waypoint, Blackstone sort of led the way on this. This is not the commercial real estate business, not the residential, but I think Blackstone is now the largest... Uh, commercial real estate holder in America, just sort of incidentally as part of its business you know other mm-hmm. firms have have sort of similarly um been successful in building out and then you know they're also now expanding not just to single families uh but to apartments and to mobile homes so it's um it's a it's a area that is really transforming what it means to l- literally live in America right now.
0: What about the nursing homes? This is another area that um you know, unfortunately has crossed into to my life as well. But seeing different facilities for elder care and how their, you know, standards of care and their facilities have changed over the years. It's getting, I think, a lot of attention in some circles, but the link to private equity has not gotten much attention. Talk us through that as well.
1: This is another area that's been very attractive to private equity. Um, and they have been buying up a lot of nursing homes and nursing home chains. Um Unsurprisingly, given the incentives that we've discussed, um, there have been a lot of complaints that private equity-owned nursing homes have had dramatically poorer results for residents to such an extent that researchers at NYU, Penn, um, and University of Chicago, I believe, found that private equity ownership of nursing homes was uh, correlated with 20,000 premature deaths, uh, which is just an extraordinary number. Um, Just to give you a tactile sense of what that looked like. Um, The example that I always return to is when Carlyle bought up HCR ManorCare, which was once the second largest nursing home chain in America. Um, After they did that, they executed a sale leaseback, like we were talking about earlier. They collected transaction and management fees. I believe they did a dividend recapitalization where they essentially got borrowed money to pay themselves. Um, And the business suffered. Staffing went down, um, complaints went up, and ultimately the business went into bankruptcy, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, when a family tried to sue for wrongful death um, at one of these facilities, however, um, Carlisle was able to get the case against it dismissed by saying that, oh, no, no, we actually don't technically own the nursing home. We merely advise a series of funds whose limited partners through a series of shell companies ultimately own the nursing home. And that was enough for the local judge to get the case against Carlisle dismissed. But it meant that the family member wasn't able to recover from Carlisle. And I bring up that example because it, it shows how the law shapes the incentives of these private equity firms and makes it not just rational, but almost sort of necessary for them not to invest in a nursing home, not to invest in long-term care which creates ultimately the kinds of problems that we see about in aggregate in these statistics and specifically, like it sounds like you've
0: seen. You bring up Carlisle there, and that's one of the ways in which this conversation really does overlap with national security issues. And it it's because of the, the personnel involved. As I first became aware of Carlisle, simply because of Frank Carlucci, who had been the deputy director of central intelligence and I think a deputy secretary of defense before becoming the actual secretary of defense with a nice little tour as national security advisor in the middle. So one of the giants of 1970s and eighties national security leadership, but he spent a lot more time after that running Carlisle and taking it from a time when it was a relatively small entity. To the time when his chairmanship ended, and then uh, subsequently becoming an absolute giant, uh, he's not the only one either. talk about talk about that relationship. Why is it that these private equity firms that that ostensibly are interested in finance and knowledge about bankruptcies and how to manipulate them and how to find value in these companies? Why is it that? senior strategists in the national security realm seem to be popping into leadership positions and board memberships on a whole lot of these.
1: It's so interesting. So I'm glad you brought up the Carlisle example, which was uh, co-founded by David Rubenstein, um, who was this really interesting character. You know, He sort of grows up in working class Baltimore, um, absolutely excels and becomes a, a, a assistant to President Carter at age 27. Um, and, you know, is fabulously successful at the White House. Ultimately, Carter loses, and he he goes into private practice and starts the Carlisle Group. The Carlisle Group uh, sort of struggled, as I understand it, for a number of years, but then they sort of hit on their core idea, which was to hire high-level former government officials. Frank Carlucci was the first and leading example, but there were others, you know, um, um, James Baker, the former Secretary of State, um, President George H.W. Bush traveled on, on their behalf, um, you know, chairman of the SEC and FCC, uh, among so many others, um, ultimately became surrogates for Carlisle. Um, partly, it seems, just as, a, as an attraction for potential investors. James Baker, and I believe one of his biographies talks about, you know, really my responsibility was to just chat with um, investors and sort of give them insights that they couldn't get from the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. Um, So there was sort of this mixture of sort of money and power that was very attractive and very successful for Carlyle. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say this for the specific names that I mentioned, but there's a broader um, ability of private equity firms to bring in just incredible leading lights from government. You know, the the names that I mentioned, but also um, secretaries of treasury, um, speakers of the house a vice president and so many others. Uh, which has been enormously successful at sort of creating um, uh, an aura around the industry, but also potentially for helping private equity to, to get what it's hoping to accomplish um, from a lobbying or regulatory side. And I think that there have been few industries that have been as successful in achieving their sort of lobbying agenda as private equity. And I imagine that part of that is because of the, the folks that they have been able to get on their side.
0: And Carlisle's interesting because uh, many of these farms that people aren't familiar with and only hear about through some of these case studies that ended really poorly. Um, presumably, most of these farms have some really good success stories, but I, I know Carlisle does. Carlisle alone or with others bought and sold Getty Images and Duncan Brands and Booz Allen Hamilton, companies that are doing pretty well overall and were not gutted and had tens of thousands of people you know left without pensions or anything like that so i guess it speaks to that larger issue that yes there are there are some problems with the business model itself that lead to some frankly suboptimal <laughs> outcomes for a whole lot of people but the process can work sometimes and Carlyle has shown that
1: there will always be an important role for investment in our economy you know, mm-hmm. as, as I mentioned earlier, as long as we need to build new factories, there needs to be somebody that's willing to risk the money to do it. Not every, you know, probably not most Carlisle investments have have gone south. You know, the HCR ManorCare example that I mentioned was was um, you know a particularly bad one. But to the extent that they or other private equity firms think long term, you know, they can be a positive for us. The example that I think about is um, there was a smaller private equity firm that invested in in restarting a timber mill in Arkansas you know they they put up a lot of their own money rather than relying on debt they took a long-term perspective rather than a short one um and you know as based on the public reporting they were able to restart this mill essentially revive a town because they were willing to risk the money on that but to do that you really need to be taking a long-term perspective and you need to be willing to take responsibility for your own actions and not every private equity firm has been willing to do that
0: yeah well there are a couple of big cases that I'd like to focus on here that that have some kind of a nexus with private equity. Um, I'm thinking first of the, the big case that most people have heard of, the SolarWinds hack. Start us off by reminding us of the hack and why it was so consequential.
1: Yeah, so SolarWinds is an IT software provider that provides various security services. Um, They were ubiquitous for a number of years. I think their CEO, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but it said something along the lines of, uh, we're everywhere. Um, And that was certainly true, at least within the government. Uh, In, if I'm remembering the year right, uh, 2019 or 2020, Mm -hmm. uh, SolarWinds was um, ultimately hacked. I believe it was reported by state actors. Um, They believed Russia uh, yeah. And what was described as the most consequential hacking in the United States history, I believe uh, the Justice Department, Treasury Department, I believe State and others were ultimately compromised by the the Solar Winds attack. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was absolutely devastating. And as was subsequently reported, um, Solar Winds had extremely lax security standards. Whether it was Having a publicly available password for one of its update sites that I believe was literally SolarWinds123. <laughs> not a great look. Um, can't make it up. Yeah. To um, complaints in in civil action saying that the CEO was unwilling to pay for necessary security improvements. That was an allegation. I'm not sure it was proved one way or another. Um, it seems that SolarWinds, despite being incredibly important for our national security, was not taking its own security terribly seriously.
0: So, so I got to say, neglecting security and having bad passwords um, does not always lead to an outcome like this. And it certainly isn't always linked in some way to the issue of, of private equity. So how, how, did, how did the SolarWinds case... Come about, and how can you trace at least some of that to issues of private equity?
1: Sure. And I don't want to overstate the case here, so I want to be extremely careful. But um, SolarWinds was purchased by two private equity firms, Silver Lake and Tama Bravo. Um, Before the acquisition, uh, there was no reporting that SolarWinds had operations in Eastern Europe. After the acquisition, there was reporting to the SEC that they did, the implication being that under the private equity firms, uh, uh, acquisition or ownership, uh, SolarWinds ultimately moved some of its production, I believe, to Belarus, which, as your listeners know, is, is you know, occasionally a- often allied with Russia. Now, there's nothing to say that the sort of vector of attack happened through Bel- Belarus, but the mere fact that the company was willing to move its operations there suggested that they were taking a perspective on their long-term security differently than, I think, what a long-term owner of the business would would probably be doing. Um, there were also accusations that, after the private equity uh, purchase, the um the CEO, you know, the appointed CEO was sort of unwilling to spend money on you know necessary security improvements and so forth. Um, the really frustrating part about that whole story is, shortly before um, the SolarWinds hack was publicly disclosed, as I understand it, um, uh, Tom Bravo and SolarWinds sold significant stock in the company, suggesting that they you know, made an awful lot of money um, off of this business, uh, despite the fact that, uh, that it caused really enormous damage to the federal government.
0: That does sound problematic, not necessarily because of the dynamics of private equity, right? Although they, they may have intersected with it in terms of cutting costs and it did that lead to some of these security choices, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it's not to say that, you know, only private equity could have caused this problem. You know, certainly there have been um, you know, other hacks, you know, caused by other, you know, people that used a password as bad as SolarWinds 123. Mm-hmm. But what I think is unique here is is a case where these firms were, you know, purchased the business, appeared to have taken a very short-term perspective to it. You know, ultimately took a whole bunch of risky actions that seem to have potentially hurt the business, and then when things went south, they they backed out and you know tried to you know get as much money back as they could. Um, So it's not to say that you know private equity is the only problem here, but it certainly seems like it made big problems more likely.
0: So there is definitely um, some potential risk to national security because these firms just don't receive the same scrutiny that many other companies do. And you point to reasons on this, uh, going from the ability of, of Congress to understand some of the details to the administrative executive branch setup for looking at these companies. But clearly, private equity firms don't hide the fact that they're taking money from foreign investors and foreign countries. Uh, walk through the example of Blackstone and why there is something problematic there.
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting. You know, we you had this great question earlier about, you know, where are private equity firms getting their money? We we already touched on pension funds, but a big part of it is sovereign wealth funds, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, other governments. Um, so at various times Blackstone has um been very cozy with um governments that are sort of erstwhile allies or, you know, outright sort of um adversaries of the United States. So Um, At various times, uh, Stephen Schwartzman, the head of Blackstone, has uh, been on an investment advisory group with um, the Russian Sovereign Wealth Fund. He ultimately backed out of that after the invasion of Georgia. Um, He has been enormously successful at cultivating investments from Saudi Arabia and its leader, MBS. Um, And even after the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, um, uh, you know, there was sort of the appearance of backing off, but not the actuality. As, as I recall, um, Schwartzman and other private equity leaders declined to attend the, you know, quote unquote, Davos in the desert after Khashoggi was assassinated, um, but uh, continued to take the, the kingdom's money and ultimately even return to that public um, platform. Um, there have also been investments from uh, from China and into China by Blackstone. Um, in a way that sort of suggests that Blackstone is um, sort of a leader in building sort of Chinese investment in the United States and vice versa, to such an extent that uh, President then-President Trump invited uh, Stephen Schwartzman to help negotiate a trade agreement with China. Um, and he essentially asked, acted as a private envoy uh, to the Chinese government. I, I believe he said that he made eight trips to China on President Trump's behalf. To help negotiate these agreements. So it's a really interesting example of where you have private equity firms that are headquartered in America, that have their operations in America, that are transforming America, but are ultimately getting their money from and responsible to uh, governments that are in America.
0: The dynamic you just laid out doesn't sound entirely foreign to use the word to the American experience Franklin Roosevelt famously had leading members of the business world whom he would have you know doing things internationally on his behalf and on behalf uh, of of the US government but there there's something different about it is it simply the the amount of money and the huge impact these private equity firms are are having in the US economy that makes this more troublesome
1: Uh, You know, it's a really interesting comparison. You know, I think that there are two challenges that we've got here. Um, One is, you know, you you mentioned FDR sort of employing, I think they were called, what, $1 men to to work on his behalf during World War II. Um, You know, ultimately they were working on his behalf or on behalf of the government. Now, um, the challenge that we've got is that these private equity firms uh, ultimately have responsibility to foreign investors. So it's not entirely clear... Um, just as a fiduciary matter, um, you know whether they can always act in the best interests of you know the, the 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 United States government. That's not to cast specific aspersions about any particular firm or anything like that. But what it suggests is, ultimately, these firms are responsible to their investors. The challenge, the other challenge that we've got here is that um, private equity firms are. Rarely staffed by people with operational understandings of companies, you know, understandably, these people come from, you know, not from engineering or marketing, sales, you know, uh, logistics or anything like that. They come from finance, and so that's what they know. Um, so one of the, you know, as opposed to when you, well, you know, during World War II, when you're hiring auto executives to help build up, you know, national production capacity. So these people have, you know, have marketed themselves as sort of masters of the universe, but what they are is masters of finance. And I think what we've seen is repeatedly when private equity executives are actually placed in the position of responsibility for managing a company rather than um, sort of merely directing its finances, the results often have been very poor.
0: Let's take this up to a higher level um, in the bigger picture of national security How does private equity stifle US competition and otherwise get in the way of a strong functioning United States economy that can have an effect on the ability to protect national security interests?
1: It's a great question. So, you know, I always say, you know, this project is not a critique of the people in private equity. You know, there are, I I know people in private equity. They've been nothing but lovely and kind to me and, you know, seem like very nice and and diligent folks. Um, the challenge that we've got is the private equity business model and the incentives that it creates. And in America, like in every country, every couple of decades, we invent a bad business model. You know, right now it's private equity for the most part, you know, uh, two decades ago it would have been subprime lenders, you know, Five decades ago, it would have been savings and loans. Seven decades ago, it would have been conglomerates. You know, 10 decades ago, it would have been uh, trusts. You know, we keep inventing bad business models. And ultimately, that stifles U.S. competitiveness because it changes our uh, incentives away from investment and competition and towards extraction and essentially disinvestment. Mm -hmm. So to give you an example, you know, when you have a private equity firm that buys up um Toys R Us three private equity firms bought up Toys R Us you know and ultimately did a lot of the tactics that we were talking about whether it's sale leasebacks layoffs strate- you know bankruptcies and so forth you know it decimates a company and it decimates workers and it decimates you know the places where these businesses are headquartered there are higher stakes you know industries whether you're talking about um you know in the national security world or in healthcare or something like that Ultimately, it makes our economy less functional, it makes us less competitive, and it makes us less able to invest in ourselves in our own future. And that's what I worry about is, you know, other com- countries that have legal systems or business systems that are more aligned towards long-term investment um, are ultimately going to succeed in a way that we won't if we are focused only on short-term extraction.
0: Fair enough. Uh, the good news is, uh, in your own words... Um we can fix this and you lay out a series of reforms that as you described them are ambitious, but all achievable. Talk about the main things that you recommend changing and how we would do so.
1: Yeah, I think I wrote too many reforms, honestly. So at a high level, what we need to do is we need to change the incentives of private equity firms um, to, to go back to those original problems that we've been talking about. We need private equity firms to be thinking long-term, we need to make it less likely that they load up companies with a lot of debt and extract a lot of fees. And we need to hold them responsible for the consequences of their own company's actions. If you do that, private equity firms can be made a really productive part of our economy, you know, to, to allocate capital in a way that's really going to be useful for sort of our long-term innovation. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can do that. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, action in Congress, but as we know, you know, Congress can work on some issues. On others, it struggles. Um, You know, we can act on Congress, in Congress, but we can also be working uh, across the federal government, whether it's actions at the Securities and Exchange Commission, Treasury Department, Mm -hmm. Federal Reserve, and so forth. But also, and this is something that I really try to hit on, is there's a lot that we can do at the state and local level, you know, that state legislatures can be saying, Okay, when private equity firms acquire businesses in our jurisdiction, they can't load up the business with too much debt or too many fees. If they ultimately drive a business into bankruptcy or there is a legal problem in a portfolio company, those firms can be held responsible in our jurisdiction. Now, there are a lot of really interesting sort of niche legal questions about that that I don't want to bore you with. But basically, there's things that we can do, not just the federal level, level, but also the state and local level. And there are also things that we can do as individuals, whether it's working with state AGs or private litigants or even as activists, to ultimately push to hold these these businesses responsible for their actions. So, you know, it's a big problem that we've got with the private equity business model right now. But the good thing is there's a lot of levers for us to pull to change it and to go back to... Louis Brandeis, you know, what began this conversation. You know, private equity firms are essentially a recreation of the trust of the Gilded Age 100 years ago, at least in how they're legally structured. Um, And we ultimately constrained the powers of the trust for 50 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we
0: did it once, we can do it again. There's one particular reform that uh, I don't quite understand. So I want you to explain it. Um, And because it involves a nuance of an area that I'm not very smart in, like many, which is involving the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which was created uh, by law within the last couple of decades. Uh, You recommend that the Financial Stability Oversight Council within the Treasury Department designates the largest private equity firms as systematically important. What does that mean? And what would that do to help us, I guess, understand and possibly control these effects of private equity?
1: And I want to make sure that your securities and banking lawyer listeners, um, you know, don't have um, sort of aneurysms as I'm describing this as a humble antitrust lawyer. Uh, but the the short version of this is that private equity firms at a high level are, are vastly less regulated than um, banks and investment banks. So uh, really, the, the core regulation for a PE firm is they have to file what's called Form PF with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Whereas um, you know banks are or bank holding companies tend to be regulated by the OCC, the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, you know uh, state regulators in some cases, um, and they are subject to a whole lot of requirements around you know maintaining minimum levels of capital and so forth. The idea being that you know when a bank fails, it's not like when Toys R Us fails. There's can be, there's a huge ripple effect for um, you know depositors and borrowers, lenders, and so forth. Um, which is why we subject our banks to higher levels of scrutiny, mm-hmm. and for some banks, we subject them to considerable scrutiny because they are "quote unquote" systemically important. If uh, uh, you know some of our largest banks fail, it can lead to you know a national or global recession. The really interesting thing is that private equity firms thus far have been subject to none of that, despite the fact that um, you know Blackstone and uh, KKR are, you know, aiming to get a trillion dollars in assets under management in the next few years. The fact that the CEO or the leader of Blackstone makes about 10 times as much as the leader of Goldman Sachs. These are in many ways our leading financial institutions, but they aren't regulated in the same way. So I would encourage, um, you know, the same level of, uh, analysis or, or scrutiny of private equity, uh, Firms and their holdings that sort of our investment banks and others receive today.
0: Now you're you're not wrong that you do recommend a whole lot of <laughs> reforms, and I think that the beauty of them as a as a set is that it's not all punting to Congress, saying Congress, you need to legislate these forty two things, uh, or it's all on the hands of regulators to to step up their uh, regulation and enforcement of things already on the books you do spread it across things, both in terms of federal, state, local, across executive, uh, legislative, judicial. Um, But one area that doesn't get as much attention is something we, we spoke about a few minutes ago, which is the issue of the foreign influence and the unfortunate consequences in some ways of the heavy foreign investment through these private equity firms. Is there anything that reasonably can be done on that? Or is that just something that perhaps with some increased transparency, which some of your reforms do get at, that just that awareness of it will help people understand the potential consequences on that front?
1: That's a great question. And I didn't make a a recommendation on that. Um, And I I hesitate to sort of uh, uh, jump on an idea uh, sort of on the fly, but I'll just add a little bit more color to the problem at least, which is that private equity firms are expanding sort of in every direction to buy in, in some sense, literally the infrastructure of the United States. Um, You know, one of the really interesting stories is uh, KKR buying up local water systems. You know, if you live in Bayonne, New Jersey, or Middletown, Pennsylvania, um, likely the water you drink and pay for uh, is being supplied by a a former KKR uh, uh, joint venture. Um, And, you know, there are sort of similar stories about private equity firms investing in Um, you know, whether it's energy projects, ambulances, um, uh, fire departments, and so forth, literally the work of government is in some cases being taken over by private equity firms. Now, it should be, if not concerning, then at least interesting when a private equity firm is taking on the work of the American government, but it's funded at least in part by foreign governments. So I I hesitate to offer too prescriptive of a solution here, but I certainly think it's something that Um, people need to be made aware of and be thinking thoughtfully about because ultimately private equity firms are responsive um, to the folks that give them money.
0: Got it. Well, we will turn now to our Cheddar Box to see if it takes us deeper into one of these channels or takes us in a whole new one. Here's your question. (laughs) Recommend any recent book you've read or podcast you've listened to or TV show you've watched.
1: Oh God! Can I? I I can only do one, right?
0: I think we'll allow you to stretch it.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, so I would recommend Jed Rakoff's book, um, "Why the Innocent Plead Guilty and Why the Guilty Go Free," which has been um, it's a it's a slim little book by a federal judge in the Southern District of New York, um, explaining both of those problems and uh It has a level of specificity um mm. that is really rare um and I think can only be gotten from somebody that has been dealing with specific cases for you know thirty years um and it it's um it's a very sad but also somewhat inspiring story about um why things often go so terribly for individual criminal defendants and why things often go so very well for for white collar defendants um So I, I, that has been, um, just a really meaningful, meaningful book for me to read. Um, in terms of movie recommendations, I watched the worst movies in the world, just the absolute (laughs) trash. So I need to, I need to sound smart to you guys and to your listeners. So I'll, I'll recommend one fancy, fancy movie that I watched the other day, which is Taipei Story, which is Hmm. on, um, which is on Criterion, which is the story about a young couple in Taipei, ultimately, trying to sort of struggle on the sort of last ring, rung of the middle class. Um, but it's um, one of those movies where you have to turn off the lights, you have to turn off your phone. It's kind of quiet, but um, when you watch it, you feel like you've entered somebody else's world for for two hours, and it was a beautiful experience.
0: Well, we will take note of those and, and link to those in our show notes, but I cannot leave this without asking you, when you say Terrible movies that you watch—that that really is such a matter of taste—and you 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 could be insulting a whole class of movies that some people, namely me, uh, enjoy. So, what kinds of movies would you go to if uh, you weren't trying to impress people with Taipei Story?
1: Okay, so we're we're gonna get real here. Hold on, I oh, yeah. I take notes of what what we what movies we want.
0: Have you actually compiled a spreadsheet of these? Because that would be impressive.
1: Uh, I do uh, because wow. every year my friends, we do our, a movie music and TV recommendation list. Um, so uh, I have been watching the lesser alien movies. Uh, so, you know, uh-huh. you know, you can always like alien and aliens, but when you start rewatching alien resurrection, um, that means yeah. that shows that you really like the trashy stuff. And that was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. There are some problems there. But <laughs> I think any franchise that, that keeps going and going and going is, is going to have ups and downs. I don't care if it's, Star Wars, Star Trek, um, you know, there's some that are clearly way better than others. With Alien, they
1: really should have stopped at three. Yeah.
0: I, I think that's a pretty good rule for most franchises, right? <laughs> I mean, some some continue it going and have some high moments later, but there's and probably a good general rule that should only be broken in very, very special cases. Exactly. Yeah. Brendan, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for sharing with us all of your research and insight into private equity and its implications.
1: Thank you so much for the
0: time. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.